0: Thanks, Anna. Well, we've had a couple interesting Mother's Day. Last day we did two trips to the ER, I think. Last Mother's Day, last year. And this year we've got a a sick one at home. So Robin's had, we're we're shooting third time's a charm next year for a a normal calm Mother's Day. That hasn't quite happened the last couple. Uh, You can pray for it this morning if you think of it. Well, we come back to um, the Gospel of Mark. Back to seeing Jesus again interact with the people As we think about Jesus Christ, really, there's no one that can deny that the historical figure of Jesus Christ has had an outsized impact on the world, whether they believe things about him that he said or not, that this man walked the earth some 2,000 years ago and sparked a movement that has grown and continued and has been passed on to billions of people and transformed individual lives and families and communities and and cultures, really. No one can deny. No one denies that. But if you'd ask individuals today now, maybe even in our room, who do you say that Jesus is? What is his real significance? What did he claim? That's where more disagreement comes into play, and sometimes a lot of disagreement. Here's from this quote from the late Christopher Hitchens. He said, Jesus is Santa Claus for adults. That was the late Christopher Hitchens said that. Or on the other end of the spectrum, to the words of the Apostle Peter, and Jesus asked them, but who do you say I am? From Mark 8, he said, who do you say I am? And Peter answered him, you're the Christ, the Messiah. You can find a lot of different views and everything in between that. Opinions on who Christ is. Maybe you've heard the often quoted C.S. Lewis quote. It's a little bit a long quote, but it's worth our time this morning because it fits so nicely with our passage. But that idea that C.S. Lewis talked about who Jesus is, what's his identity, it's worth our time this morning. It's from mere Christianity. He said this, I'm trying here now in his book to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, he wrote. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy, or else he would be the devil of hell, Lewis said. You must make your choice. He goes on to say, either this man was not is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, you can fall at it, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He went on, now it seems to me obvious that he, either, he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, a liar you might say, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept, accept the view that he wasn't his God. Who do you say that Jesus is? How do you relate to him? It's the most important question you could ask in your entire life. The most important question you could ask. In this passage, we're going to look at six. We're going to do them quick, because it's six. Six different responses to Jesus. Six different responses to Jesus and his ministry. And we're going to see that they're wrestling with this very thing. Will they call him? And will you and I, liar, lunatic, So grab your outline, hopefully you got it uh, open, and and mark chapter 3 open to verse 7 as we're going to look at our first response this morning. As we do, as I said, we're going to go through them quickly. Here's what I want us to ask. Let us ask ourselves, why are they responding this way to Jesus? And and what does it say about Jesus when we watch their response? And what does it say ultimately about us, about you and I as we look? Well, here's our first one. The crowds. The first response of the crowds, they want to own Him. They want to own Jesus. we're going to see this morning. Verses seven through ten that Anna read describe this mad scene now. Remember we're picturing we're walking alongside Jesus in this book, kind of shoulder to shoulder. as remember Mark is a fast paced action packed gospel. And here in verse 10 we have, seven through ten we've got this mad scene uh, and, and the crowds are surrounding Jesus again. In fact, there were so many people that he was Afraid of being crushed. You heard, him, heard uh, Anna read that in the passage today. He was afraid of being crushed. Not only that, they were coming from great distances now. Not just the local area where he was, yes, from Galilee, but now from all over. Judea, Jerusalem, and all these other extensive uh, geographical areas that were mentioned there. They're meant to really point us to the area that was the Israel of old means that by that time, in Jesus' ministry, area that was is the Israel of old, from all that area now, people were coming towards him, coming towards him. And when you travel far distances to get something, you're not easily turned away, are you? If you've gone really far. Remember the old movie, uh, uh, I, I think it was old Cherry Chase movie, Vacation? They travel across the country to get to, I think it was called Wally World, and they go all the way across the country, and they get there, and it's closed. And what do they do? I think they had up breaking in, don't they? If I remember correctly. I mean, they're, they're not getting turned away. They've traveled a far distance. They're going to get what they came for. That's a little bit what we got going on here with Jesus. The crowds have come to Jesus, and he was trying to get away a little bit at the sea. But they wanted to own him for their own purposes. They wanted Jesus. You can't fault them. They wanted healings and healings He gave them and was giving them as they pressed in upon Him. Mark describes for us, they pressed in upon Him. But Do you remember, as we are looking at the Gospel of Mark, what is Jesus' primary purpose? Mark gave it to us right up front. You know, they were not so much interested in what Jesus had to say and what those claims meant about him and them, that, that their need to repent and believe. But that's what Jesus' primary purpose was. Here it was again from Mark 1. You see it coming up. Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was his primary purpose. And yes, the healings validated that. And yes, the healings came from a heart of love that Jesus had for the people. But they stopped there, most of them. They wanted him for that. And it begs the question for us today, as we come to Jesus Christ, as you think about your own relationship with him, as we're looking at each of these responses, am I, are you, serving God or following Jesus to get the things of God or just to get God himself in relationship? Well, how do you know that? How do you know if you're looking at your own heart and life and wondering, am I following God just to get the things and the stuff that He promises and the good stuff? Or am I following just because He's God and I want Him? How do you know? Well, some questions to ask. How do you respond when the things God has given you either get threatened or or, or pulled away by life? Whether it's a job or health or finances or reputation or just the normal frustration and hurt of life do you respond with a a general hurt or a general frustration or does your life become a a life of despair that's how you know do you feel when you lose one of those things that life's just not worth living or do you realize okay this is hard this hurts and but i gotta keep going that's how we know that's for the most part that's how we can test our heart is ask ourselves that question what's primary for you if it's the things of god when they're pulled away You'll see how you respond in life. His primary purpose was this to bring us a life transformed by relationship with Him through repentance and faith. It's the primary message He's preaching. And yet the people can't quite get past their immediate needs to see that. But we also see something in Jesus' response to the crowds that I think is actually um, pretty encouraging those crowds that wanted to own him for their own purposes. It's actually really comforting to watch Jesus respond because he doesn't always respond the way we think he would as the God-man. Have you ever watched those, um, we've we mentioned a couple movies today, but a bank, those bank heist movies where there's a group of, uh, of uh, criminals and they're going to go in and rob a bank. There's always one group that goes in, but what do they do? There's always one uh, person, and what do they do with him? St- yeah, stays out and Keeps the motor running, right? Keeps the car running. Keeps the motor running. Did you catch what verse 9 says? Jesus says, hey, uh, keep a boat running and keep one guy in it because uh, I don't want to be crushed. And We may need to hit the pedal to the metal and get out of here. That's Jesus' response. What do we see there? I think we see Jesus in real humanity now as a real human who can can relate now to the stress of a stressful, fast-paced, chaotic life. He was going through it. It means he can relate to the stress of your life, the chaos of your life you feel sometimes, the feeling of being overwhelmed. Jesus Christ felt that on the shore of Galilee this day. He said, keep the car running. We may have to get out of here. He can relate to you. You feel like the walls are closing in around you in life. You feel overwhelmed by life, stressed out. Jesus was a real human too. And he understands what that feels like. He was going through it that day. He understands your trial in deeper ways than you know. He had someone keep the car running. The stressed out mom maybe this morning. The tired dad the overwhelmed employee, whatever it might be for you, Jesus has felt it. So run to Him, knowing that He sympathizes with you in your weakness. He sympathizes with you, and yet is the Son of God. So He's a human who knows you, can sympathize with you, and yet He's the Son of God. Even as the demons say. Let's look at our second response to Jesus. If the crowds wanted to own Him, the demons wanted to out Him. They wanted to out him. The last time we ran into some demons in Mark's uh, gospel was chapter 1. Chapter 1 in the synagogue. Do you remember? And the demons uh, said to him, and from Mark one twenty four, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons have... A partially correct theology. They get things right, but when they say it, it's always like off-key. It's always out of tune, you might say. Like when you play two notes that are, uh, I think it's dissonance, when they're kind of clashing. You're like, ooh, that doesn't sound right. You have heard that. A couple notes that that just sound kind of off. That's how the demons speak. They may be saying something true, but it's always off-key. It's always out of tune. There's always some other underlying motive. Pick it up in verse 10 with me, as we'll read 10 and 11. For he healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. The demons know. They kind of get it. They they even call him here Son of God. It's reminiscent even of the uh, baptism of Jesus, where he's called the Son of God, where God says it himself, a couple chapters back in Mark. But again, what happens? Jesus says, don't make me known. He basically says to them again like he did in the the previous chapter, shut up. That's what he says to them. Be quiet. Don't say a word. Shut your mouth. In fact, it's the same word he's going to use as we sang about him calming the storm today. We'll look at it in a few chapters. It's the very same word he says to the storm and the waves. He's got that kind of power. He says, Stop. Stop. The demons were attempting. What were they doing? They were attempting to derail God's timeline, to out him before it was his time, to out him too early, to derail the plan. They knew who he was. They didn't maybe quite know how the plan was going to go, but whatever they were going to do to derail it, they were going to do it. They were going to try. On the one hand, they were strangely drawn to him because whenever he shows up, people with demons tend to flock. It's odd. They've they've known him since they were created, um, so maybe there's something to that. But for whatever reason, they were strangely drawn to Jesus, the very one who was going to destroy them and who was going to defeat them. And he defeats them here with a word. That's all it takes, a little word. One little word to defeat mighty evil powers. Jesus Christ says, be quiet. And they stop. Surprisingly, out of the three options, liar, lunatic, and Lord, the demons in an attempt to out and destroy him are the closest to calling him Lord. But not out of a heart of true submission. They want to destroy him. They want to out him. They want to see whatever they can do to make him fail. So the crowds want to own him. The demons want to out him and see him destroyed. And the apostles, what do they want to do? They want to be with him. Or better yet, Jesus wants to be with them, his apostles. Kind of wants to get away from the crowds from time to time. But look what he says in verse 13. The 15th. And he went up to the mountain and he called to him. He called to him those whom he desired. Hear that word. He desired them. And they came to him. And he appointed the 12, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Jesus himself needed to get away. He needed a break in his humanity, his fatigue, his feeling of being overwhelmed, and to refresh like you and I need to get away sometimes. We do well to heed Jesus' model and example that the Son of God, who was a real human, needed rest. Well, then surely you and I do too, don't we? We need rest. But I also love the fact that Jesus wanted to share his ministry, probably because he needed it and needed help, but there was a desire in his heart to share it as well. The demands that it made on him would be better served if he began to multiply people, and disciples that were called apostles, that he would create, the words really say, he would call into existence this band of disciples is the language of those verses there. Literally it says, he made them. He made the apostles. He made them. To do what? To preach. To take His Word. To go and have the same authority that He did. To cast out out demons. Verse 14 describes it nicely. To be a disciple of Jesus means to be with Him. Verse 14 says. He called them to, to be with Him. To be with Jesus. And then it says to be sent by Him. That's what it means. To be with Him and to be sent by Him. Mark wants to get that point across to us. When you answer now, when you answer now who Jesus is and what He is to you, if you call Him Lord, not liar or lunatic, if you call Him Lord and you call yourself a disciple, you want to be with Him, close to Him, Uh, near to him to to know him and we're going to see the end of our passage to obey him that's a disciple and it's in that nearness as the disciples were around him and the apostles walked and lived amongst him it's in that nearness that you become transformed by him that closeness that's why he said come i'm calling you be near me be near me you're changed by your nearness." you come to know who this one is that now you're being sent out to represent. That's what's happening with the apostles here. I understood, there was, there was, I understood those shirts, they existed, they were real popular a few years back that said, Jesus is my, anybody know? Yeah, yeah, you got it. I saw some mouths there going homeboy. Yeah, you saw the shirt. Jesus is my homeboy. I understand it. I get the shirt. I I get what they're trying to say. Jesus and I are, are close. We're tight. We're close. All true. But when Jesus is our Lord, when Jesus is our Lord, it means what is taking place when we come near him is so much deeper than just hanging out with somebody. So much deeper than just hanging out with somebody. It is that in an intimacy and a fellowship, but it's so much deeper. When we come to Jesus, we are responding as the apostles did by saying, I will follow you even if it means going places I don't want to go. It's deeper than just hanging out. It's more costly at times than just grabbing a cup of coffee with Jesus. And don't get me wrong, The informality and the personalness of Jesus is there too. We can just sit over a cup of coffee and speak to Jesus. I want you to hear me say that. You can do that. But it's also so much more. It means tying your life to his life and being sent by him to serve the world with his message. It's deeper, it is more costly, but it's much more rewarding it's much more rewarding. Do you view your discipleship that way? Do you think about your life that way? And the intimacy of your relationship with Jesus Christ that way? To be with Him, He said, disciples, come. And then to be sent by Him, now go. That's what He's saying here. And are you willing to risk? It's a good question to ask. To come to follow Jesus Christ Sometimes people say, count the cost. It's absolutely worth it. But do you see your situation as a call to follow him? Remember that one question we've been asking and hitting time to time? What is your salvation for? Do you Remember that? We asked that question a couple months back. We have put it up a few times here and there. What is your salvation for? Well, I would say one thing is to follow him, to be near him, and to be sent by him. Whereas you look at Jesus... And maybe you have seen him this way. Maybe today is a new start for you as just a mere friend. Another Facebook friend. Or is he Lord of your life? That's what he's asking these apostles. Think of the disciples. They're about to follow him now. Do they have any idea what they're getting into? Not really. They're going to follow him to the agony of the garden and beyond. In a short time, they're going to have to count the cost, but it is is absolutely worth it. Because it's the purpose you were created for. That's why. it's The reason you exist and I exist is to be in relationship with Him. It's absolutely worth it. That's why we call it reality, truth, ultimate reality. Because if you're outside of this, you're living for something, and it might be something that gives you some modicum or form, amount of pleasure, but it's not what you were created for. Ultimately, now. It's to be in relationship with Him. The crowds want to own Him. The demons want to out Him. Disciples want to follow Him. And the scribes want to destroy Him. The scribes want to destroy Him. Again, we've we've been calling them special counsels for the investigation of young rabbis. That's what we've been calling them. Another group of these guys has been sent to investigate Jesus. They've been sent to check Him out. The scribes, they come and they are, they're the highly trained specialists of the law. That's who these guys are here in the text. They know God's Word. They know the Torah. They know the law. They're highly trained in it. And here comes this Jesus outside of their system. Outside of what they're used to. Outside of the norm. And they say, you know, we know know He's performing real, real miracles. We can't deny that. And they say, well, we better destroy Him then. Or at least debunk Him or at the very least, destabilize His work any way we can. And that's what we see here. And if the three responses we're talking about today are liar, lunatic, and Lord, these scribes choose liar. They choose liar for Jesus. In fact, they do something that receives one of the uh, most serious, gravest warnings from Jesus in all of Scripture. Some have called it the unforgivable sin. Let's take a look at it in 28-30. through Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, that's great news. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying now, he has an unclean spirit. This is never actually called the unforgivable sin in, in Scripture, but called the eternal sin. But first, what did the scribes actually say about Jesus. What were they saying? And Jesus doesn't say they've actually committed it yet, but are in danger if they continue their course. If they don't turn from their direction, they're in danger of committing this eternal sin for which he says there's no forgiveness. You see the language of verse 22 and 30, they were saying, they were saying not just they said they were saying it means they were they kept doing this on and on and on it was the general tone of their message they kept saying these things about him it was this continual ongoing evil claim so this unforgivable sin must be ongoing it's not a one time thing it's a continual thing not a one time even blaspheming of the spirit Or taking Jesus' name in vain, as serious as as those are. Verse 28 says, those are forgiven. Well, they basically, what did they claim? Basically two things about Jesus, these scribes. Two things about him. First, that he was possessed by a demon. Beelzebul. Basically means Lord of the Flies. Or Lord of the Dunghill, really. I think where the title of the book, Lord of the Flies, comes from. Basically, that's what they called him. They're They're saying Jesus is possessed by a demon and controlled by Satan. That's what they're saying. He is the ruler over all the demons, they call Jesus, with this title Beelzebub. He's the ruler of all evil. And he's using Satan's power, the second thing they say, to cast out demons. That's the second thing they say. He's using Satan's power, not God's power, to cast out demons. Those are some pretty serious responses to Jesus, aren't they? Have you noticed how the majority of responses, they're usually pretty strong, aren't they? Either worship and adoration or sheer hatred and anger. He's kind of a polarizing figure, isn't he, at times? The idea that Jesus was uh, kind of just nice and cuddly and that his love never offends was, was preposterous. He just, he, he, he's polarizing at times. He came to save the world and saving the world would take rearranging everything he's coming to rearrange all the furniture everything that's going to cause some polarizing responses in people's lives isn't it maybe in your life today as you sit there and go you know i yeah okay jesus i hear uh, he's done some stuff but I, I don't see it as that good when i look at who he is or maybe even look at the church i don't know i don't know if it's such a good work Maybe that's you today. Well, at this point in the Gospel, Jesus begins to respond, no longer with direct statements, but what's what's his favorite way of talking? In in parables. All of a sudden, Jesus switches. He says, I'm going to start not responding with direct statements, but parables now. Why does he do that? I think it's because he's loving, actually. He's actually loving and doing so. Because instead of just kind of like just throwing it at him, or, or trouncing them with, well, no, that's wrong. This is right. He, asks, he engages them and asks them to think. That's why it's loving. He treats them like people and says, let's actually think about this together. That's what love does. He doesn't just crush them. He says, well, let's engage on this. You might walk away saying, we got to destroy him more, but let's at least engage. I love what um, Uh, This guy David Garland says, Jesus' use of parables with his opponents is the way of true love. He does not simply want to rout them in debate, but to entice them to think together with him. And isn't that what you want to do with those that uh, haven't come to trust Christ that you know? We don't want to just rout them. We want to engage and say, let's think about this together. And that's what Jesus is doing here with these parables. He says to them, in a summary, if there's a kingdom now, if there was a kingdom and a strong man, a ruler of that kingdom, would he really defeat his own purpose by casting out his own from people, the demons? I mean, if I do things by the power of Satan's scribes, why would I be destroying Satan's plans? Think about it, scribes. That's what he's saying to them. It makes no sense, scribes what he's ultimately saying is scribes you see something much greater than that strong man is here something much more powerful than satan is here a new kingdom that's going to come and bind that strong man this is a cosmic kingdom battle waging and taking place and jesus is going to win if here it only takes a word he's going to win this battle and if this is the case that what's taking place here is some big cosmic battle you can begin to see how standing in the way of that mission is a really big deal is a really big deal and in fact Jesus goes so far as to say if you fully oppose me you're aligning yourself with Satan It's pretty heavy words, he says to the scribes. But if it is on that grand of a scale that he came to rearrange the entire furniture of the world by saving a people, you begin to see, if I stand in the way of that, that's pretty serious. I mean, Peter, in a few chapters, is going to get a really strong rebuke from Jesus, isn't he? You Remember? Jesus begins to discuss the way he's going to uh, win this kingdom battle by his death. And Peter forbids him. And how does Jesus respond? Mark 8.33 says this, Get behind me, Satan, he says to Peter, his beloved apostle. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's a strong reminder that to be opposed to Jesus is to align oneself with his enemy, Satan. Who's not a very strong enemy. In fact, he's a created enemy. He's not a self-existent enemy. There's no such thing as yin and yang. Let me tell you that. You know what though that is? That is—that are equal powers, good and evil. That Star Wars would have us believe and it just one at a time or the other, It's whatever side is... The, no, there's no such thing as yin and yang in Christian theology. There is one God and all His enemies are created and He will control and defeat all of them. That's what we believe. That's the truth. Peter was standing in the way, at least at that time, and it was worth a rebuke from Jesus. Now's the time! Today, now is the time to align yourself with the victor through repentance and faith. Now is the time to call him Lord, not liar and lunatic, but Lord. I know you're wrestling some some of us in our hearts today with this. Good. Wrestle with it. Don't ignore those feelings coming inside. Don't push them down. Embrace them and think with Jesus through these parables. Don't ignore it. Something happening. So what's this unforgivable sin? we gotta talk, we got to talk about it, right? It's the elephant in the room, isn't it? There's some passages that, that are elephants in the room. This is one of them, that every Christian or follower or person goes, what would that be, the eternal sin? It's the, uh, that we might call the so-called unforgivable sin. As I said, it's only called the eternal sin in the Bible. I think Kent Hughes describes it, he's a, a theologian, describes it really simply for us. He says this. Very simply now, it is the ongoing, continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and and, and saviorhood of Christ. It's the perversion in the heart that chooses to call light darkness and darkness light. It's the continuing rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit, whether that witness be a quiet witness in the conscience, The rational witness of the word, or even miracles and wonders. It makes sense. It makes sense that to reject the work of Jesus in an ongoing way with an increasing hardness of heart until death, of course, is unforgivable. That's what he's getting at here. But it's also a warning to us now to turn to Jesus. To turn to Jesus. Well, let's say you're a Christian. You're a follower of Christ, and today you're saying, I'm a little concerned. Have I I committed the unforgivable sin? The eternal sin? Have I committed that? Let me set your mind at ease. If you're concerned at all that you've committed the unforgivable sin, you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. If you're concerned at all Today, you have not committed this sin. There's some comfort in that, right? (laughs) Some comfort in that. The eternal sin is a, a hardened heart until and into eternity that calls the work of Jesus a lie, the work of the devil. But I will say this. It is people that are sitting in a church or that know the truth are the most often the ones that commit this sin because you've got to have some knowledge about who Jesus is able to say, no, 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 no. I, I've heard the works of Jesus. I don't claim that. In fact, I don't want anything to do with it. So there could be someone here today who is struggling with that, but a, a believer in Christ won't commit this because even your concern shows there's a love in your heart for Christ. Something is happening there. So the crowds, the demons, the disciples, and now his family wants to arrest him. You know, if I was wanting to choose an ironic passage for Mother's Day, this would be the one. This would be the one. It's funny in God's providence how things are sometimes a little funky, but I was even reading a commentary today that said, this probably wouldn't be a passage that would be great for Mother's Day. Well, it's lined up and scheduled for this Sunday, so. As we come to Jesus' family's response to him, they choose lunatic. Lunatic. And we get one of Jesus' toughest sayings to his family, and his mother included there. Now, whether his family's response to him was motivated by, uh, by a, a love for, for Jesus, probably was, or a desire to protect him from these crazy things he's saying, or protect the family name, maybe, maybe it was a combination of all three. It's clear this, this wasn't a friendly visit. Look at verse 20 and 21. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, arrest him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jump to 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent him and called him and a crowd was sitting around. They said, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus' response would have floored them in a culture where family identity was everything family identity was 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 everything your family was life and life was your family your family was life and life was your family if our culture problem is the uh, idolatry of the individual their culture's issue was the idolatry of the family Uh, family was everything look at verse 33 or 35 how he responds today to close us, But the woman, uh, excuse me, that's chapter 5. Chapter 3, verse 33. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It leads us to our final response. And the response is That response, it's the only right response to Jesus, is to follow him in obedience. His true family members want to obey him. That's our final response today. His biological family wanted to arrest him, and Jesus says, my true family wants to obey me. Clearly now, I want us to all hear this, clearly now Jesus is not saying on Mother's Day of all days to sever your ties with your family. He's not saying that. In fact, in the last few moments of, a life, of his life, didn't he love his mother dearly? He was still loving and caring for his mother and thinking of her when he's on a cross dying. He said this, John 19, Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. He tells the Apostle John in John 19, he says, he's hanging on the cross now, about to die. Take care of my mom. Take care of my mommy. (laughs) Bring her into your home. Take care of her. Look out for her. So he's not saying that. He's not saying that on Mother's Day. Break ties with your family. So what's he saying? When he says, my mother, brother, and sisters are the ones who obey me, what's he saying? Because it really means everything for us today. What he's saying is that there's a kinship, there's a family bond that is deeper than even the flesh and blood family. Do we see the church that way? Do we see each other that way? That's what he's saying. There is a kinship and family bond that is deeper than even flesh and blood. And obedience doesn't give you entrance into that family. He's not saying that. Faith and repentance does that. But obedience is what is that evidence that you are part of that family. Does that make sense? Obedience isn't what saves you. We know that. Faith and repentance saves you. But obedience is sure a sign, Jesus is saying, that that deeper bond, obedience is a sign that you are part of that family. We all know this. You know this. When do you feel most distant from God? When you're sinning, being disobedient. When you're sinning. When you're stuck in sin. No one is more miserable than a sinning Christian who hasn't repented. I, I, I mean, I know that. I think you can probably relate to that. We know that. We know that. You feel distant from God, don't you? You feel distant from because He's your family. We're family. You feel distant from the family. Kids in here know this. Those who are sitting here with their moms or dads today. When you have disobeyed your parents even, and you realize and you're in the wrong, you feel distant from them, don't you? When you finally see your sin. Christian men stuck in porn addiction. There's no one more miserable who feels alienated from their God and disobedient. Feeling miserably far from God. Or how about the anger that you just can't let go and it keeps lashing out and you know it's there and every time it does again, you feel far from the family. We know this. And you wonder, why am I feeling so far from God right now? Obedience fosters intimacy with God. That's why. Obedience is the the way that God fosters that intimacy when you live for your Father. It's not what saves us, but it's evidence that you are in His family. So Christian who's miserable in sin, repent and turn back. He said in verse 28, there's forgiveness for all these sins. Repent and turn back to Him again today. But how about if you're wondering, how do I respond to Jesus' words? They are tough words, these words about the family. Where is the tension for you in Jesus' words? That my true mother, brother, and sister are the ones who obey me when his biological family's right there, his mother's right there. They are they're tense words. I want everybody here to think that this morning because we all have a place that it causes tension for us when Jesus says a family member obeys. We all have that tension. Here's what he's standing there saying, looking at him at those who sat around. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So here's a few different options. Maybe you're a bit more of kind of the lone individual type. Maybe you've bought into, these are a couple ways to respond out of this. Maybe you've bought into the, uh, I would even call it American lie. That I'm my own captain. Nobody's going to tell me what to do nobody's going to get in the way of my plans and in fact that's actually where my true meaning comes from and the truest what makes me a person i am an autonomous individual i mean that's the ethos that's the mantra that's the worldview of america and the, the west really does jesus claim to be lord of your life hits you there maybe that's you this morning or maybe you're at the other end of the spectrum and to call Jesus Lord would actually cause you trouble with your biological family. That might be you this morning. Maybe you're at the other end. So to call Jesus Lord and to follow Him in obedience would cause trouble for you on the family front. Jesus says it may. You know, if I claim Christ as Savior and Lord, do you know how much I'd be ridiculed by my family? My family would almost disown me, I think. I'd be the laughingstock of my family. It would cost me too much. Well, it does, it does cost. It, it, it costs a lot for us to follow him. But we can always say this, it cost him more, didn't it? It costs him more. It costs him his life. It costs him that taking on the punishment of our sin so that you could be his family member today. It costs him more. Maybe you're the third one for you is, And I hope this is for you. Maybe you don't, you're a person that just, you don't really have a good relationship with your family. Relationships are broken. You feel lonely. Guess what? There's a kinship and a bond that can be deeper than even your biological family. And they're in this room. They're here today. That must be true, or at least a possibility, if Jesus says it. I hope that's your response today wow, I get to be part of something deeper. doesn't mean I don't love my mom, my dad, my brothers and sisters. They are my biological family, and they always will be, and I've got a unique tie with them. But Jesus' reality says there must be a way to have something deeper than even that biological reality. That's what I want so bad for us, Bethany Church. That you can look at the people in the pew and say, man, it's something unique. There's a kinship here that's nowhere else. A fellow brother and sister in Christ, part of the family of God. So what do you call him today? We close with it. What's your response today? Liar, lunatic, or Lord? Let's pray. So many responses uh, in such short time, Lord, as we look at how in one little few passages there could be such different responses, God, to our Savior Jesus Christ. And each one of us today has to wrestle with how do we respond to Jesus? Is it family? Is he family Do we respond in repentance and faith and and have a longing desire to please our Heavenly Father? Lord, help us continue to wrestle with that today. I pray even today, Lord, that you would cause someone who's on one of those...